Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanone. Great to be back with you. This week, we're talking to Stephen C. High, professor of history at Concordia University. He's published extensively on deindustrialization and post-industrial transformation of North American cities. His books include Industrial Sunset, The Making of North America's Rust Belt, The Deindustrialized World, Confronting Ruination in Post-Industrial Places, and One Job Town, Work, Belonging, and Betrayal in Northern Ontario. He also recently published a piece in Canadian Dimension titled Right-Wing Populism and the Realignment of Working-Class Politics in Canada. How has deindustrialization impacted the working class in Canada and around the world? How is deindustrialization a side effect of global capital that constantly seeks cheaper labor, shaping the politics of our time? Will the next election in Canada spell doom for the NDP, outmaneuvered by the Conservatives for working class voters? These are some questions that we talk about today, and uh, we have a really good discussion. So I have some exciting announcements this week about the show. Sweater Weather is now available as an audio podcast. Find it on all the major podcast platforms. Another announcement is that we have a new website. I'm very proud of because I designed it myself. I will include a link to the website that also has buttons, nicely designed links to the podcast platforms where you can find the audio version of Sweater Weather now. You'll also find buttons on that website that take you to Patreon and PayPal. You know, your support is essential to the show. And so if you do like what I'm doing, which is bringing the best of left Canadian publishing, journalism, and academia to video, and now audio, where it will circulate more widely, hopefully gain new audiences, then please consider making a monthly donation to the show uh, on Patreon or a one-time donation via PayPal. All right, that's enough out of me. Here's Stephen High speaking about deindustrialization in Canada and beyond. Thanks, Stephen, for being here. Oh, it's, it's great to be here, Aaron. In your 2003 book, Industrial Sunset, The Making of North America's Rust Belt, 1969 to 1984, you point out that, quote, the deindustrialization thesis is part fact and part myth. It's not that the North American manufacturing sector disappeared. In fact, you know, despite significant closures, the number of industrial jobs continued to grow through this period. Although it's true that the industrial sector did go into a relative decline compared to other economic sectors. So those are some of the facts. The myth part has to do with the stories that were told about these economic changes and what these economic changes meant. What significant narratives about economic change and the working class who were impacted by it emerged in the period that you write about. Who told these stories and how true were they? Well, I think sometimes we, we, we think that we live in a you know, post-industrial world, yet everything around us was made somewhere. And that's always been the case. And so what's really changed is where people make things and and how much they're paid for doing that. And, and so the 1970s and 80s, which was the focus of, of, of that earlier work of mine, um, was really thinking about so that global restructuring of, of the division of labor, where you see um, the industrial heartlands of the United States, of Canada, of Western Europe, um, 
really be hollowed out, right? And emptied out of a lot of those jobs. So, so deindustrialization is true to a large extent in, in, in certain areas, right? Like there are towns and cities and, and even regions where you see, you know, industrial work become very, you know, very, very small proportion of the overall workforce. Um, but of course you still have industrial workers. And I, I think, you know, um, again, I think sometimes, you know, people think that industrial workers are somehow, you know, in the past, they're not in the present, right? They're not part of our, you know, our future. And, and I think this is really quite wrong. And, and of course, to me, you know, what's going on here is very political and, and, and there, there are reasons why, you know, jobs are being moved, you know, why people are being paid the way they are. Um, and so, and so that book of mine was really getting at that. And so I was looking at, at um, government records, the union records of uh, interviews with, with, you know, ordinary industrial workers, sort of getting at like what, how they made sense of what was going on, right? You know, who they blamed, how they understood it, and what they did, right? Like, how do you, how do you respond to this, you know, in a way, unprecedented change? Because you think of, you know, uh, Jefferson Cowie's talked about, you know, what he calls the great exception, right? It's the United States, you have, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, the, the New Deal, you've got this rise of the welfare state, you've got unionization, you've got rising standards of living. The whole idea of the blue collar middle class is really created in this moment, right? Which is also true in Canada. And starting in the 1970s, that starts to unravel. And, and, and you have, you know, you have this idea of blue collar middle class no longer being connected in the same way, right? And I think, I think a lot of the, the politics that we're seeing these days is, is reacting to that. In Industrial Sunset, you trace and compare the processes of transformation in Canada and the United States. And, you know, your study found that, quote, Canadian workers pr proved far more successful than American plant closing opponents, unquote. So could you talk about how deindustrialization played out differently in the two countries, as well as the differences and the methods of resistance to deindustrialization in the U.S. as compared to Canada? Well, even the notion of deindustrialization. So what, you know, again, how do you understand and what do you call this sort of change? And, you know, 1970s start having this notion of post-industrialism. You know, Daniel Bell comes up with this idea that we're in this sort of evolutionary change that's always getting better, just as we went from our, our cultural world to the industrial world, world, we're now moving to some better place, right? And, and this idea of deindustrialization was sort of, you know, emerged during this, these crisis years in the 70s and 80s to raise real questions about what was going on. And actually, one of the earliest uses of, of that term is actually Canadian, that it comes out of the, the waffle movement of the sort of left nationalist sort of um, current within the NDP during the early 1970s, where, where they associated you know, deindustrialization or job loss, industrial job loss, with the fact that much of the Canadian economy was foreign owned, specifically American owned. And so there was this idea that, that, that American corporations, American based corporations were more loyal to, to their home country than they were to Canada and the Canadian branch plants. So, so the idea that foreign investment leads to disinvestment 
was really powerful, uh, powerful political idea in 1970s in Canada, which effectively politicized the issue, right? That, that I mean, one of the big challenges for the union movement is how do you politicize what might be perceived as the private affair between you know, employers and their employees, right? How do you make this, how do you, how do you sort of make this a political issue and so, and so nationalism in Canada really does that, right? That it, it's a question of sovereignty. It's a question of Canada's destiny, right? And so, and so the labor movement in Canada essentially wrapped themselves in the Canadian flag um, and pushed governments to do something. And so in Canada, you've got, you know, in the start of the 1970s, you know, you have different provinces and the federal government legislating things like advance notice that you can't show up to work one day and and find the gate locked, right? You know, after 30 years, you're, you know, out of work the day after kind of thing. You know, you've got preferential hiring rights that are legislated. Severance pay becomes legislated. Uh, a measure of pension protection, so your pensions can't be taken away from you, although they can be <laughs> in the case of bankruptcy. Um, and so these are all things that, 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 that help soften the blow in Canada that are achievements of, of this political pressure. And in some cases, you have, you have, um, you have examples of, of reindustrialization or the saving of, of, of manufacturing. So for example, in 1979-80, uh, Chrysler Corporation was a massive crisis, right? Um, and so in Canada, you know, the Canadian government said, okay, we'll bail you out. And this is a familiar topic, right? We'll bail you out, but on the condition, right, that you reinvest and, and modernize the Canadian plants, right? So, so, so because there were strings attached to this, right, unlike more recent years, because there are strings attached, it actually led to the reindustrialization of places like Windsor or Oshawa or, or, um, or Oakville, right? Um, not just for Chrysler, but for also the other two big three. Whereas the United States, you know, they bailed out Chrysler, but their condition was that, that employees had to do more concessions, right? So the, so the government sort of pushed the unions to actually reduce wages, to reduce benefits, to reduce pensions. And so they had a very different take, right? And so the United States, you know, it's, it's, it's entirely different, right? So you've got American corporations, you've got American uh, workers, uh, you've got a union movement that is very conservative, that has become bureaucratic over time, um, that is blaming imports, you know, they're bl blaming the Japanese or, or whoever. Uh, and so, and so, and there's divisions politically between union members, working class uh, people, and middle class students, right? The rise of the new left, you know, there's, there's huge political divisions, you know, if you think of uh, All in the Family, right, and Archie Bunker and Meathead, it's sort of that idea, there's this political division, and so, and so there's no unified response, right? So they're unable to, to politicize the issue. And so you see, you see, you see, you don't see any legislation. So all these things that we want in Canada, in the United States, you know, they had a bargain for that. On, uh, you know, the unions had a bargain for that. And of course they had to bargain away things like wages and other things in order to get these things, if they could get them at all. 
And so you have two very different political environments, right? Even though they're working for the same companies, it's often the same unions. And in fact, because they're, they're so divergent, so different, the tensions within the union movement are such that you start seeing Canadian unions breaking away from the United States unions. So, you know, the Canadian auto workers instead of just the United auto, auto workers or the paper workers, you know, a whole bunch of unions split in part because of these political differences that are and these tensions, the 1970s and 1980s, and this rise of sort of nationalism in, in Canada. Would you say that left opponents of deindustrialization in the United States didn't really have access to a, a kind of nationalism that might work in a progressive way? I mean, you mentioned already maybe what you might call xenophobic nationalism and blame, you know, blaming imports from, from Japan. Yeah, I make a distinction between sort of investment nationalism and trade nationalism. So in Canada, they, they focused on investment. So they said, you know, they were they were they were keeping accountable corporations that were in fact offshoring their production. So it was actually American companies that were moving production to <laughs> wherever, right? And then and in order to, to drive down wages. And so it wasn't just a question of Japanese companies always or other you know other places. Whereas in the United States, it was trade nationals and it was all about, you know, uh, Americans versus Japanese or Americans versus Mexico. Um, and so I think this focus on corporate decision-making is really important. Um, uh, Deindustrialization doesn't just happen, you know, it, it's not inevitable. Like I said, the world has not deindustrialized. It is the political decisions that are made to lower trade barriers, you know, a lot of the, the, the free trade agreements are really, you know, there's no guarantees in terms of, of uh, jobs or wages. And that's the irony, right? Like the Trump, <laughs> the Trump, you know, Trump's sort of reevaluation of NAFTA actually is an improvement. <laughs> and, 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 you know, um, it's well, he politicized when, it. He politicized yeah, he, well, he it. Politicized. Like said. Yeah. yeah, he politicized it. But he, you know, he, you know, now there are conditions uh, that, for example, in the automotive sector, that that a certain proportion of the car must be uh, must be built in in North America. A certain percentage of the car must be built by people being paid a certain amount, which is you know, basically a union rate. And and the Democrats in the United States never did that, right? Um, and so you, in in a way, you've got you know you got a Democratic Party in the United States that you know that. Despite the new, you know, the New Deal and the and the you know the, the legacy of, of Franklin Roosevelt, you know, turned us back on working people um, and and embraced you know embraced these these trade deals which have been horrendous, right? In much the same way that of course the Liberal Party in Canada has done, right? You know, Liberal Party in Canada has done the same thing, pushing free trade. Uh, Conservative Party, of course, you know, 1988 election when. Uh, Mulroney ran on free trade was a really decisive moment, um, and and the NDP, you know, like, like like because maybe because they haven't been in power federally, you know, have have opposed a lot of these trade deals, you know, unlike social democratic parties in Europe or or elsewhere. What's becoming uh, obvious from our conversation here is that deindustrialization is just sort of part and parcel of capitalism as it moves around the globe. For example, uh, you know, a caricatured idea maybe we have of the economy is that China has all of the manufacturing jobs now, but you know, areas of that country are now experiencing deindustrialization 
as capitalism continues to shift, you know, the ground beneath them with severe consequences. You know, you write in your introduction to the 2017 edited collection, The Deindustrialized World, quote, deindustrialization as an ongoing process of capitalism reveals itself in various iterations and elicits disparate responses in different contexts. Could you talk about your research on deindustrialization in a global context? What light does the North American model of deindustrialization with its attendant economic, cultural, and political consequences shine on the economic situation on the rest of the world? And what does deindustrialization in the rest of the world tell us about what, what's happened here? Well, you're absolutely right that 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 it, you know this this impulse to constantly lower costs, right, and to lower labor um, costs, you know, explains you know in the 1950s and 60s you see a lot of, you know, you see a lot of factories moving from you know say the industrial heartland of the United States like Michigan to the U.S. South where there was cheaper labor or in Canada from like cities to more rural areas or even to, you know, with government subsidies in terms of regional development, you know, to more peripheral areas, um, but they don't stop there, right? They move there, then they move somewhere else where it's cheaper and then somewhere else and they cross this border and they cross that border and they cross this border. And China is one stop on, on that road and it's not the last stop. Um, and so, and so this drive, you know, to constantly lower costs, right, uh, is a downward spiral. And, 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 so, and so this issue of sort of the global is really, really essential, right? And it doesn't always unfold in the same way that in North America, um, governments uh, really did not, even in Canada, yes, they did, you know, soften the blow, but they really didn't interfere with management sort of prerogative to sort of invest or, re or disinvest. Um, there's only a couple, you know, 1970s, you see the uh, nationalization of Canada's aeronautics industry, uh, which later became Bombardier. Um, but there aren't that many examples of sort of, you know, sort of big state intervention in, in, in order to save jobs, right, in Canada. Uh, and so generally the state is not involved, right? And so it's the corporations who really have, you know, and, and we don't know what's sort of, we don't know, we don't have access to, you know, their, we don't know what's profitable or what's not profitable. So we have to, you know, we're put in a position of having to trust whatever they say. And so you get these, you know, vacuous reasons. Oh, it's not profitable or it's not efficient or whatever. And there's no accountability whatsoever. And, and so you have, you know, communities that lose their, their economic engine, right, overnight. Uh, and there's really no, you know, no government role in that. Uh, and so decline is, is, it's sort of savage capitalism. There's no real controls um, economically. But in, in Europe, it sort of unfolds a little bit differently. So in, in, um, in the UK, for example, um, you have, you know, sort of almost like a moral economy where with a strong labor movement and that would be putting pressure on employers, right, with, a, with a, the state that was sort of engaged, that you have sort of managed decline like during the 1970s, right? So for example, you know, in mining, 
workers would be given the option of, you know, when a, when a, when a mine closes, the option of moving to another mine that's still going, right? Or the option of getting, you know, a job in a, in a factory, but the government would sort of equalize, you know, salaries and so on. So it was managed decline. Then Thatcher comes along and it changes overnight. And so you see, you see savage capitalism, sort of North American model introduced in a big way in the UK. And so, and so our understanding of deindustrialization in, in the UK is very much associated with, with Thatcherism, right? Um, but in France, you've got, you've got, you got, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the, the big industries, steel, mining, you know, are actually state-owned, and, and so you've got again, you got sort of managed decline. Um, doesn't necessarily change the results, but it certainly softens the blow for those workers who, who you know, miners or steel workers. But of course, their children are out, are out of luck. <laughs> you know, their children, you know, they can't get those jobs their parents did. There's no support for them whatsoever. And, and so the crisis is essentially deferred, right? Um, so yeah, so I, we actually have a big project right now just started this year where we're looking at six countries and it's a seven year project and looking at, at the politics of deindustrialization and looking at how it unfolds, you know, in different ways in different places um and and why that might be right like why why does it play out differently in france or in italy or germany germany is a good example because it hasn't deindustrialized at all in the same way right as um as other countries what are those six countries but it's uh, the UK, uk france italy germany us and canada so it's the old sort of industrial uh world right so that you know, the area that industrialized really early. And of course, we're very interested in what's, you know, to understand what happens in those six countries, we need to understand the global perspective, right? Where, you know, where, where, where the movement of capital, you know, the capital flows, right, are flowing in every direction, right? And so, and so it's not, you know, our study isn't sort of closed, right, to these six countries, but it's trying to understand and these are also the six countries that we chose because of the rise of, of right-wing populism. Um, and we're interested in, in sort of, again, the politics. So, so a lot of deindustrialized areas across these six countries, less so Canada so far, are really in these areas that were once, you know, left-wing bastions, right? Would vote socialist or communist in, in Europe or, or would vote Democratic Party in, in the United States that are now you know, now voting for a populist right. And, and so we're interested in, in thinking about these connections between economic decline and the abandonment of industrial workers politically and, and this deep anger, um, explosive anger that, that we're seeing, you know, that we're seeing now. That sounds like a fascinating project and it brings to mind actually a, a family anecdote. I have a lot of uh, family in Italy my uncle just retired from, uh, I think, about 40 years working at a helicopter factory in Frosinone. This is in central Italy. And uh, I, I think he, he was always a rather liberal guy. Even I think he even, I remember him speaking well of the Communist Party. He may have even voted for them sometimes, the Communist Party in Italy. Uh, and, you know, now if we ever talk about politics, he, he really seems to be responding, you know, more to uh, Salvini, the you know the Lega, 
and that brand of, uh, you know, in some cases, xenophobic, uh, you know, right-wing populism. And uh, I think, I think that's kind of sad. No, it's very true. Like a, you know, a town like Turney, which was an old steel town, you know, um, in Italy, you know, which was communist socialist, you know, now is, is ruled by, by the, the radical right. And, and that's not a unusual story. The Front National in France has swept through like the, the mining regions. Um, and so, and so like, how does someone do that? Like, like, like you're, you're, you're saying, how does someone move from, you know, a sort of left-wing critique of, of the world, right? And, and this sort of working class consciousness that has a long history, you know, a long tradition and a very militant tradition to voting for Donald Trump or voting for Salvini or voting for, you know, Le Pen. Um, West Virginia, the United States was one of the most liberal states in the United States until the 1990s, really, right? And now it's 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 like 80 percent Republican, right? Like it's it's ridiculous. And it was once a very heavily unionized state. And so I think this is part of the story that that the collapse of the trade union movement because of deindustrialization has been has had a huge political impact because you know these were working class you know, progressive organizations, you know, we can critique how progressive they are, but certainly, you know, that, that generally on a lot of issues, they were, they were progressive, um, have been demolished, right? So a lot of the, these working class institutions have been you know, entirely demolished and not only demolished, like, you know, losing, you know, losing work, but, but actually, you know, leading to disillusionment, right? Uh, in my own research, I, I, you know, people who, you know, I, I was looking at reports from union organizers, and they were finding as early as the 1980s that the people most resistant to actually signing a union card were actually former union members who experienced a plant closing. And, and so their experience was so bad, right? They felt that they, you know, were betrayed by, by their union that, that, uh, that this results, right? I think, so to me, yeah, that's the same sort of chemin or same road as what you're talking about, right? You know, then leading to like voting for, you know, a political party that that might seem, you know, in total opposition to what, you know, what they voted for before. So this seems like a good place to pivot to your recent article for Canadian Dimension, uh, which I which I really like. Now, you know, the on this ongoing legacy of deindustrialization is something that the media took notice of if briefly, after the election of Donald Trump, you know, with reportage from former industrial towns and cities uh, in the Midwest, for example, you know, who had voted for Trump. Uh, I thought your recent article for Canadian Dimension was, was really good because uh, it's, it was a different kind of article, but it raised similar issues for Canada. So in that piece, you write, quote, Canada is ripe for right-wing populism and a realignment of working class politics is taking place that can support its growth if left unchallenged. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more, you know, specifically to the Canadian context about who these working class voters are and why right-wing populism would appeal to them. I think, you know, sometimes Canadians can be quite complacent. <laughs> you know, we look to the United States and we say, oh, that could never happen here, right? And, and uh, I guess my, my piece was was trying to, you know, 
raise an alarm that, that we're not immune to these wider forces, um, in part because economically, what we've seen is exactly the same thing in Canada, that industrial uh, towns and, and uh, resource dependent communities have been hollowed out and pulverized, right? By the political decisions made in, in Ottawa or, or a lot of provincial capitals. And, and of course, these wider, wider forces that are, are at work. Um, and we've already seen uh, a wave of populism, of course, in the early 1990s with the rise of the Reform Party, uh, which actually did make inroads into a lot of working class communities, like mainly rural communities, of course. But, but I know that in my, I mentioned this in, in my piece in Canadian Dimension that, you know, I'm originally from Thunder Bay, Ontario, you know, Uniontown, Northern Ontario, all Northern Ontario is basically NDP liberal. Uh, it's hard for the conservatives to really get traction there because it's unionized. Um, and in 1993, the federal election, um, you know, some of the poorest polls, you know, polling stations in Thunder Bay, which would normally be 65, 70% NDP, flipped to the Reform Party, right? So exactly the same, exactly the same pattern that we're seeing in West Virginia or Northern Minnesota or Ternia, Italy, or in the nor northern mining basin of France, or parts of, you know, Northeast England. Um, and so we see the beginnings of that, but there was no economic populism within that message of the Reform Party. Um, and so, and so my, my, my editorial was sort of commenting on, on how, you know, the, the new leader of the Conservative Party has sort of been putting up trial balloons like he's seen what's happened in the United States he's seen how the you know the red wall like the labor sort of north of England which has always been labor essentially last election just just a few months ago um, you know much of that wall collapsed and, and areas that that have been you know labor for generations right voted conservative right which is remarkable given Thatcherism and, and that legacy and and what happened to those communities in the first place, how they could vote for the conservatives is, is mind boggling, right? Um, and so you see, you see the Canadian conservative parties seeing this, right? Seeing what's happening in, in the United States, seeing what's happening in England, seeing what's happening elsewhere, and, and realizing that, that, that you know, if, they, if they sort of deploy like a blue collar strategy, you know, there's no reason why, why, why working class voters like union households, you know, might not vote for them. And, and, you know, the challenge historically in Canada is that it's a three-party system, not a two-party system. And you had the NDP, which, which had its anchor in working class communities. But that, that, that connection has, has withered over time, um, and in part because I think the NDP is gentrified. It is much more of a party of sort of the public sector middle class, I would argue. Um, uh, and if you look at where the NDP holds, like what seats they hold federally, it's mainly in downtown sort of cores, right? So downtown Edmonton, downtown Vancouver, downtown Toronto, um, and so on. And, and industrial towns, so like the Hamiltons or Windsors of Canada, there aren't that many left, right? But we have some of those. And, and then the resource frontier, right? So northern, northern you know, Saskatchewan, Northern Manitoba, Northern Ontario, you know, used to be Northern BC, less so now. Um, 
and and so so to me what the conservatives are gonna, are gonna try to do is they're gonna try to pry you know those two electorates apart um and and they can do so you know through economic populism by by the rhetoric of you know we need a manufacturing base you know which again the conservative party is responsible for free trade <laughs> and so it's 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 um remarkable um but also also you know you know trying to use wedge issues like like the culture wars um which uh, you know a lot of lot of working class voters you know might be conservative actually on non-economic issues um, or less liberal on, on, on non-economic issues and so that's you know that, that that's a way to you know to pry apart you know that that coalition and and because the NDP is so weak right now uh, in my view federally uh, I think they're very vulnerable uh, uh, to to being you know disappointed right in in the federal election next year do you think that the conservative party uh you know while using the rhetoric that might appeal to the working class you know given that party's uh it's it's you know the interests that it represents the coalition that it that it that it represents could it really do anything to materially improve the lives of the working class or is it is it really just uh, smoke and mirrors? Well, I think it's I think it's smoke and mirrors, but but they already you know like rural areas are often quite poor too, right? And you have this urban rural divide you know politically across North America, um, U.S. and Canada, where rural areas do not vote NDP and they do not always often vote liberal even, uh, and yet these are often areas that have been that have suffered from globalization, right? That have suffered from sort of neoliberal policies. And so you've already had that 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 happen in in, in large swaths of the country. Uh, and so I think I think it is a real possibility. Um, I don't think it's necessarily real. It's like I don't think Trump was real, although he did do, you know, he did symbolic acts like the changing of NAFTA that went further than even the Democratic Party would have done, which again says a lot about the Democratic Party. Um, and in Canada, you know, Liberal Party, like it's, you know, economically, it's it's a it's a right-wing party. Um, it's not it's not a, a centrist party economically. Uh, well, I really liked your article too because it seemed to, in a sense, kind of predict a a line of analysis that's come to the fore. Uh, and just actually in recent weeks, like after you published your article. So I'm not sure if you caught any of these pieces. Uh, some commentators have been talking about a orange-blue dynamic that is supporters shifting between the NDP party and conservative party, or, like, or maybe the other way around, NDP to conservative, conservative to NDP. So Philip uh, Fournier, in an analysis of polling data for McLean's, wrote last week about, uh, quote, a modest but notable shift in favor of the NDP that does not appear to have come from current liberal supporters, but from potential conservative and green voters. These potential orange, blue and blue, green voters will be the ones to watch in 2021. There's probably a joke there about the color wheel to be made, but I'll just forego that because it wouldn't be very funny. Um, so a Canadian press piece by Christopher Reynolds points out that the Conservative Party in 2019 
did its best ever among manual working class voters. And uh, that piece is citing uh, Peter Graffy, associate professor of political science at McMaster. So now back to your article, you know, you, you brought up the historical example of voters ditching the NDP for a conservative party, the, uh, you know, in the 1993 federal election, the, you know, the right wing reform party claimed a huge chunk of NDP voters, like you've already said, now just like some numbers on that, the NDP went from 43 seats in 88 to nine seats in 93. Many of those seats going directly from NDP to the reform party. And of the next election, you write, quote, I expect the NDP will find it impossible to satisfy its middle-class supporters in downtown urban areas for whom pipelines, mining, and forestry are dirty words, and working-class voters living elsewhere for whom this is about jobs and respect for the work they do. Now, I feel this does nicely uh, summarize a contradiction to internal to the NDP party that tries to at times appeal to blue-collar working-class areas as well as the professional class of the urban of urban areas. So, do you think this split in its base ultimately spells the end of the NDP, or is this actually some kind of opportunity to grow? What what should the NDP do? Of course, you know the thing that's different from now from '93 is you got a you got a rising Green Party, and and the Green Party, of course competes with the NDP in these downtown urban areas. Um, and so in a way you've got a green orange sort of, you know, uh, dynamic with some red in there, right? In downtown areas, then you've got the orange blue with some red in there in, in more industrial or resource-based communities. And so, and so they have to fight two wars essentially, right? And they have to fight this way and they have to fight that way. And it's not the same message, right? Um, and whether it's pipelines or, you know, it's all kinds of issues where, where it's gonna be impossible, I think, for, for the NDP to find, uh, you know, middle ground. Um, now, how do they do it? Well, you know, what we've seen in the United States is, is some really exciting developments, right? With, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC, where you have sort of an economic populism from the left, right? Where, where if, if the battle becomes about economics, right? Uh, then you've got, you know, in a way these right-wing parties, right? And the Green Party not being particularly good on economic issues, right, for a lot of people. Um, and so suddenly that's a way to really redefine the debate and, and to reconnect, I think, with a lot of Canadians, uh, urban and potentially rural. Um, but will they do it? Can they do it? Um, I, I don't know, right? I haven't seen it done. You know, the last time the NDP ran on economics was 1984. And um, that's a long time ago. Um, but I, we can hope, right? So I think that there's a need for that, right? And we see with Bernie Sanders, you know, the last two, you know, primary sort of drives was that he, he tapped into a lot of young people who are precarious, who, who, who you know, have massive economic issues facing them. So issues like minimum wage, issues like, um, you know, uh, just the, the wealth divide, right? And that, that's a huge issue in Canada too. Like, again, like we had the, the Panama Papers, all this disclosure about 
rich Canadians, you know, not paying their taxes, yet, you know, our political parties have done nothing. Um, and so why isn't the NDP running on those issues? Uh, I think these are, these are the issues that really can allow the NDP to, to speak for that 99%, right? You know, to really, really position or recontextualize or redefine that debate. Uh, I think that's the only way that the NDP can really, really move forward. Um, otherwise, I think if they're, if they're fighting a defensive battle on these two fronts, yeah, I think you'll just see, you'll see another 1993. My last question here has to do with the educational divide, as this relates to obviously the class divide. But, you know, in the U- U.S. and the U.K., the, the divide between university educated and non-university educated has come to the fore as being among, you know, the most important cleavages in the electorate with those without four-year degrees, that being the majority of the population, you know, tending to side with right-wing parties. Do you think a similar educational divide is operational in Canadian politics or, or not? Well, yeah, well, I think it's clear in the United States and elsewhere that, that those without university degrees are, you know, are, and, if, and if they're white, is <laughs> also the race issue, of course. Um, you know, are, are voting massively for right-wing parties. Um, but the Canadian sort of right isn't, you know, it's differently positioned in terms of race, I think, than, than the Republicans um, or even the English conservatives. That the, the Canadian Conservative Party has really spent a lot of time, you know, making, you know, maintaining connection to immigrant communities and so on. Um, and you see, you know, pretty wide diversity within you know, within their caucus, um, but uh, but yeah, no, no. I, I I think I think this is you know this is this is absolutely true, and I think I think the culture war issue is one that plays well with people, um, you know, without a university education, because who who might feel as if they're being talked down to, right, by you know progressives, you know, by people who you know who try to you know, regulate the way we speak, um, uh, and so and so. I think this 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 class, and it's a class divide, right? In my mind, right? Uh, in part, um, and so I think I think the conservatives will run with that, and they'll they'll play with this idea of like cultural elite. Of course, cultural elites <laughs> aren't the one percent who actually you know are making massive profits during this pandemic, right? Um, but they'll use that to to shift the discussion away from you know from the issues that would actually separate that you know separate the conservative party from those people, um, and we see it done very effectively in other countries, and I think we'll we'll continue to see that done here, and I think even union households like Ohio, you know, for the second election in a row, you know, union households voted massively for Trump. Uh, and so, and so that's not impossible. And we've seen a weakening of the ties between the union movement and the NDP. Right? Of course, the NDP was a, you know, a co-creation of the union movement and the CCF. Um, and you know, I think that has withered over time uh, in a big way. And 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 again, you see these these, these transitions. So, like in, in Saskatchewan, it used to be a, a strong, you know, the strongest NDP CCF province, right? And now you, you can't find the NDP outside of Regina or Saskatoon. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I think I think things are changing. 
in a way that we've seen in other countries, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not inevitable. Uh, it's possible for the NDP to put forward an alternative and to reach out to people, you know, who, who don't have a university education, who are struggling to feed their families, who, you know, are precarious in all kinds of ways. You know, there's, there's, there's an there's opportunity there too, if the NDP takes it. You know, as a sometimes purveyor of uh, elite culture myself, you know, I'm unfortunately a poet. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, I'm starting to realize that elite culture maybe isn't that popular. Like, <laughs> like maybe there's something rather off-putting about it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who grew up working class and is now very middle class. And of course my taste of, evolved um but this this yeah this this part of this anger being looked down upon right you know by people who might be to me it's like gentrification right yeah. you know you know it's it's sort of like progressive gentrifiers moving into a place you know there's no way this is sort of what's happening <laughs> we think of often just always only at the neighborhood level but i think we're seeing this at a, at a wider national political level um and, and so it yeah these are people who have different political and economic interests. I really like your references to Jefferson Cowie in your writing and you mentioned him today too. I read um, his book about the 1970s, The uh, Last Days of the Working Class. And that to me was really a revelation, you know, about, um, uh, about culture, um, you know, how the 1970s represented not just the end of an economic moment of the New Deal, but also a, the culture that went along with it, a culture that, that, um, that, that, uh, valorized working class light way of life and um, and how, you know, you just mentioned gentrification a minute ago. It's like really since the seventies culture, cultural production has kind of been middle-class affied or professional managerial classified. No, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. And it's another book too on, on the seventies, uh, Judith Stein called the pivotal decade. And it's sort of interesting reading these two books side by side because Cowie really goes after the unions, right? And the failure of the unions, you know, to respond to this, this moment, right? This crisis. And so, you know, he talks about them being bureaucratic, being corrupt, you know, there's a, the famous case of the mine workers sort of leader paying the, for the killing of a dissident leader's whole family <laughs> yes, in 1969. I, I, yeah, terrible. Incredible. Yeah. And, 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 and so, and so Cowie really focuses on the union movement as, as, as sort of main site of failure. Whereas Stein really goes after the democratic party, right? That, that it's the democratic party's embrace of sort of neoliberalism, you know, post-industrialism, you know, this idea, you know, this, this new generation of Democrats who think that the new deal is passe, you know, we need to go high tech, you know, in the eighties, you had this notion of the uh, Atari Democrats, right? <laughs> I love, right. And, yeah. and, um, and so I think it's both, right. I think it's both. I think it's, it's the union movement's failures, but of course, you know, it's, it's, it's a wider politics of um, a failure right on the left or, or, you know, progressive quote unquote, um, and again, I think I think we need a book like like Cowie's or or Stein's for Canada, and and it does begin in the 1970s. Sometimes you think it's always the 80s, right? Like Reagan or Omar Roney, but it starts earlier. And and 
uh, like the pivot away from Keynesianism of, of, you know, the welfare state, you know, towards deregulation, you know, really starts in the 70s and, and late 70s, especially. Yeah, and it resonates on a cultural level really deeply. Um, you know, people who see, don't see their way of life represented anymore, or even just who they are, images themselves sort of you know, devalued, you know, what they do. Yeah, devalued and they is, I think, a good word. Devalued, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. And, 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 you know, and also relegated to the past in this emerging narrative of, of progress, right? As if the future is just for the professional managerial class for computer programmers. So um, are you going to write that book, Stephen? And of course, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to try as a project, right, to, to write that book um, for Western Europe and North America. So I, th- I, think, I think it is a wider story. And, and sometimes, you know, when we think just nationally, we think it's exceptional or, or what have you. And I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's like you said before, it's really tied to, to global capitalism and, and, and this 1%, right? This, 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 this rise of, you know, a fabulous, wealthy group of people who, who have, you know, who profiteered off of everything. Um, and yet our politics doesn't talk about that much, right? And especially in Canada. Um, That's a, a good place to stop, I think. Stephen, thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah.